0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible study teaching podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, Daniel chapter 10. I want to begin tonight by telling about an event that happened in our family. And some of you may have heard this story before, but back before I came to Emmanuel, back in, it was the, about the summer of 2004, we were praying about what we were going to do as a family because I had served as a youth pastor at my church in Colorado Springs. And I had been there for seven years and I would just graduated from seminary in May of 2004. And I had a buddy from seminary said, hey, we are looking to replant a church up in the Fort Collins area, in a, in a little town called Laporte. I don't know if you've ever been up to Laporte. It's kind of outside of Fort Collins, up towards Risk Canyon, and and he's like, "Hey, this church um, has basically lain fallow for a few years. It's we haven't planted anything. We've let the trees kind of grow and make it look like there's nothing happening. But we want to come in. We want to replant. And would you consider you and Don consider coming and being a church planner?" And I said, "Okay, I'll I'll pray about it." Well, about this time, it was about September of two thousand four. And um, I put my resume in here for Emmanuel. And I didn't know because the interim pastor here at Emmanuel was the director of the seminary. And he said, Sean, put your resume in. They're looking for a pastor. I'm like, God oh, they're not gonna they're not gonna look for me. I, I'm just a youth pastor, I've never done anything. So I, I had my resume in here, but my friend, we went through this process, church planning and everything, and um, we assessed pretty well. And so we went up there one weekend, to, and it was just dawn and me, to meet some people from the sponsoring church, and we drove around the area, and we had all these people say, yeah, hey, yeah, we're going to help you get this church started, and things are going to be great, and so um, it was getting pretty close to where we had to make a decision. Was I going to quit my my position as a youth pastor at the church in Colorado Springs and go out on faith and plan a church with nobody except for our family? Um, we'd get some funding here and there, and so... We decided, like it was getting pretty close to where we had to make a decision, so we decided to take Aiden and Zachary up to just drive around the area. Well, Aiden was about seven years old; I think he was probably, yeah, I think he was first grade. So we we get up to the church, and um, and for some strange reason, the church was open, so we were able to go in and walk around. But we pull up to the church, and, and Aiden says, "I've seen this church before." I'm like, what? You've never seen, You've never been here before, Aiden? What do you mean you've seen this church? I've seen it in one of my dreams. I'm like, what? You've seen this church in one of your dreams? Yeah, Dad, I've seen this church in my dream. And I'm like, okay, this is really bizarre. So we start driving around the neighborhood. We start driving around the area. We start kind of driving up in the canyon. And usually I'm pretty talkative when I'm in the car with Dawn. And I didn't say a lot. And she didn't say a lot it was very eerily quiet. And we just kind of just thought. And and so as we drove around there, we drove all the way back to Colorado Springs. And I put the boys to bed. Dawn went to bed. And I stayed up um, in the living room, and, and I started to pray. So I knelt down on the couch. And I started to pray, and I felt this oppressive feeling where I, I couldn't actually pray. I felt like this overwhelming sense of like something pushing down on my chest to where I could not pray. It was like spiritual warfare. And I I don't say this lightly, but as I was walking back the hall, so here's the, the living room, the hallway goes back to our master bedroom. There's a bathroom, a hall bathroom. And as I was walking past the bathroom, I thought, and don't think I'm weird here, I don't know what I thought I saw or what I saw, but I thought I saw a demon sitting on the toilet, like crouching on the toilet. And I just kind of got freaked out and I went and I laid down in bed next to Dawn and I I, I was kind of restless and I turned to her and I said are you do you feel like something's wrong she's like yes yes I've been feeling it the whole way home she's like I'm glad you said something she's like I feel like an oppression and I'm like I feel it too she's like call your dad Call your dad, because my dad was a pastor. I'm like, I'm not going to call my dad, because it was like like midnight at that time. She's like, call your dad. I'm "I'm not going to, I'll call him in the morning. No, call your dad. So I called my dad, and I told him the whole thing. He's like, yeah, we're half asleep. We'll we'll pray for you. So as I processed that, the big question I had was this. Were we supposed to go there, and this was spiritual warfare preparing us for what we were going to face, Or were we not supposed to go there? And this was God's way of saying, you're not supposed to go there. (laughs) Either way, it was some serious spiritual warfare that I've never never experienced it before that and I haven't experienced it after that. Now, there's there's some times I've been in India where I've seen some things, but as I prayed through that and Dawn and I prayed through that for a couple of days, we've got very clear sense that we were not supposed to do that. Okay, so in the meantime... I had told the director of the seminary, who was the, the interim pastor, I said, take my name out of the running at Emmanuel because I'm gonna go plant this church in Fort Collins. So just take my resume out. I'm not interested in Emmanuel anymore. He's like, no, we'll keep it in. Okay, so I come back and I'm like, oh man, what, am, what are we gonna do now? I mean, we're, we're not gonna go plant this church. I knew my time was up at the other church. And so it was a Sunday night and I'm sitting there in my easy chair and I turn to Dawn, and I say, the phone's going to ring in just a few minutes. She's like, what? I said, the phone's going to ring in a few minutes, and it's going to be a manual. She's like, "Emmanuel? where's manual? I said, it's in Sterling. She's like, where's Sterling? I said, well, it's that church that was looking at us. She's like, I thought we weren't interested in that church anymore. I said, well, I'm pretty sure they're going to call tonight. And she's like, yeah, all right. Well, like about 30 seconds later, the phone rings. And I pick it up. It's Leroy Whipkey. This is the chairman of the search committee for Emmanuel Baptist Church. You're one of our final candidates. So from there, the rest is history. But the point is, that was a very intense moment of spiritual warfare that I've never experienced after that. And I don't know if anybody else has experienced it to that level, but there are some things related to the spiritual world that we don't fully understand And I want to give you some wisdom from C.S. Lewis. So in his book, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis says this. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which we can talk about demons. Okay, so two errors. He says, one is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So there's two errors when it comes to demons and spiritual warfare. One, demons don't exist. Don't worry about them. The other error is that's all you think about. Maybe you've been around somebody that there's a demon behind every bush, and there's a demon for everything. So we don't want to fall into either extreme. We we, we don't want to have an unhealthy fascination with demons and spiritual warfare. But on the other hand, we need to understand there's a spiritual battle at play. And Daniel chapter 10 takes us into the spiritual battle. So I want to state some points up front We'll come back to them, but I want to state them on the front end to help frame what we're going to look at tonight in Daniel chapter 10. So here's the first. Spiritual warfare is real. It is a reality. Now that doesn't mean that you experience it all the time. There's different degrees of how you experience it, but the Bible says it is real. Number two, God is sovereign and he allows this warfare to happen for his purposes alone. So Satan cannot do anything that God does not allow him to do. So even in your spiritual warfare, God is sovereign over it. And so, number three, what we experience here on earth may sometimes be due to the spiritual conflict in the heavenlies. That doesn't mean we necessarily know all of that. And then prayer is vital to this battle. God delays answers to prayer for us to grow in godliness and to conform more to the image of Jesus. And then the last point is what indeed strengthens us in this cosmic conflict is to think about and glory in the overwhelming, blazing majesty of a sovereign God. So tonight we're going to talk about spiritual warfare, the cosmic battle, what it's all about in Daniel chapter 10. So, let's dive in and see this unfold. So we're just going to read all of chapter 10. There are three sections in this passage, and actually, let's let's take them in the sections. So, let's look at um, verses 1 through 4. We're going to see the setting. So, So Daniel chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar, and the word was true. It was a great conflict, and he understood the word and had understanding of the visions. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the banks of the great Tigris, or the river, that is the Tigris, I lifted my eyes and looked. Okay, so this is the third year of the reign of King Cyrus. How many kings has Daniel been through? Okay, he's been through a lot. He is probably in his late 80s at this point. So he's an old, old man. And what's more critical is that Cyrus was the Persian king whom allowed the Jews to return back to Israel. Remember how many years were they in Babylonian captivity? Seventy. Remember when Daniel was carted off as a teenager? So Cyrus made the decree to allow the Jews to go back. And so if you go back and you read the book of Ezra, chapters 1, 1 through 4, Cyrus allows the Jews to go back and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, and we know it wasn't an easy task. There was a lot of time, energy, a lot of opposition. You see that in the book of Ezra. Now, the question is, why is Daniel mourning for three weeks? And why doesn't Daniel go back to Jerusalem? Isn't that what he had always wanted to do? We really don't know. Most scholars make a couple of guesses. Number one, he was too old. I mean, to make that trip, there was no airplanes back then. To make that seven to 800 mile trip in his late 80s probably would have taken a lot on his body. Or maybe he felt like, you know what? Ezra and Nehemiah are good leaders. Things are good in their hands. I don't need to go back. Um, or maybe the king wouldn't let him go because he was still a government official. We don't know. All we know is that he is mourning for three weeks. And word could have reached back to him that things weren't going well in Jerusalem as they had gotten back. Um, So here we have a portrait of an aging man, senior adult. His heart is in Jerusalem. He's always, that's where he grew up and he wants to go back. If you remember back in chapter 9, he poured out his heart to God in prayer for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And now word probably comes back to him that things aren't going well. So what looked like a glimmer of hope hey, these exiles are able to go back and start rebuilding. Maybe things aren't panning out. We really don't know. But all we know is that Daniel's in mourning. And, for, and what does he do? He doesn't eat delicacies or he doesn't drink wine. He doesn't take a bath for three weeks. He's mourning. And then in verse 4, we find out what day it is. It's the 24th day of the first month of the Jewish calendar. What day is that? What does that mean? Why is that significant? Well, it's interesting. That's Nisan. Nisan is the first month on the Jewish calendar when Passover is celebrated. So it's Passover. And it could be that Daniel is longing for the days when the temple would be rebuilt in Jerusalem, so they can actually go back and do the sacrificial system and and have Passover and and, and have the Passover lamb sacrificed. So, it's Passover. He's a man that's looking toward his true home in Jerusalem. He wants to worship. He's mourning for three weeks. And then at the end of three weeks, an angel comes to him with a vision. Okay? So let's look at the second section of this chapter. The second section focuses on this vision. Of the blazing sovereignty, of the blazing glory of the sovereign God. So verses 6 through 9. Actually, let's start in verse 5. I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, And as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face (laughs) to the ground. Okay. Who is this mysterious man that shows up to Gabriel? I mean, shows up to Daniel. Is it the angel Gabriel? Some scholars think maybe it was Gabriel. Who is it? We can't be dogmatic, but here's my opinion. And my opinion is based upon Revelation. Okay. I think this man is none other than Jesus, Christ himself. A pre-incarnate Christ that shows up to Daniel. And here's why. Because the descriptions that you see here are the exact same descriptions that are given of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. There's a lot of similarities between what happens to Daniel and what happens to John. What happens to Daniel? He falls to the ground. He sees this blazing vision. He's zapped of all strength. What happens to John when he sees Jesus? So, I have it on your sheet so we don't have to turn to Revelation, but here's what John, in the very first chapter of Revelation, sees. And you guys tell me if you see the parallels here. Okay, Okay, this is John. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he had seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the shining of the sun in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I had the key of death and Hades. Does that sound very similar to who shows up to Daniel here in Daniel chapter 10? Flaming eyes, feet of burnished bronze, the voice of many waters. What happens to John when he sees it? He falls as though a dead man. What does Daniel do here? Daniel was fearfully his radiance was fearfully changed and he had no strength. And he fell on his face in a deep sleep with his face to the ground. Now, here's the question. Why does Jesus show up to Daniel in all of this brazing brilliance? Well, why, does Daniel, why, why does Daniel need this? Well, here's what I think. Daniel needs a healthy dose of the sovereignty and majesty of God to come to grips with what's happening around him. Now, we're in on the secret here because we know this cosmic battle that is about to be reported here in Daniel, but Daniel doesn't know it at the time. What, what is Daniel's perspective? What, 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 what state is Daniel in? Daniel's crying, Daniel's mourning. Daniel's in a period of fasting and mourning and weeping for three weeks. He's an old man because he thinks things aren't going well in Jerusalem. Just when we thought we had it great, we're able to go back and start rebuilding. We're back in Jerusalem. Things aren't going well. And so what does he need? He needs to have Jesus show up to him and say, I'm sovereignly in charge of things. I've got it under control. I'm the brilliant, blazing, glorious Christ. And that's what we need as well, too. When things seem difficult for us, and we're under attack, and there's hostility and persecution against us, we must see that Christ alone is King of Kings. Now, Jesus is not going to show up to us like he did to Daniel and John, (laughs) you know, face-to-face and all his brilliance. But where do we need to see Christ? Christ. If we need to see Christ, as Hebrews twelve two says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Where do you fix your eyes on Jesus? Where does that happen? That happens when you read the scriptures. So the more you read the Bible, the more your view of God and Christ is going to be expanded. So This man, it doesn't explicitly say Jesus, but I take it to be Jesus because of the descriptions of Jesus in Revelation, the parallels, but I'm not going to be dogmatic on that. Daniel is freaked out. He falls on his face. You would be too if you saw that. And so the next thing we're going to see is an angel comes to explain to him what's going on. And most commentators, although it's not mentioned, view this as Gabriel because of what we saw in chapter 9. Gabriel is coming to interpret what's going to happen. So, let's look here at the third section. The first section is the setting. The second is This blazing, brilliant man, i.e. Jesus, shows up to give Daniel a glimpse of sovereignty. He falls as though he's dead. Okay, so the third section we see is the interpretation from the angel Gabriel to Daniel, where he explains the nature of this cosmic conflict to bring him comfort. So let's keep reading here. And we're gonna go. I gotta look ahead of my notes because I didn't put. Well, I got a lot of space here. Well, we'll just read until we. i will just read. Okay, here we go. Verse ten. And behold, a hand touched me, and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, "O oh, Daniel." Man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, from from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the king of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips, and I opened my mouth and spoke, and I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me, and he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And he spoke to me, and when I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you've strengthened me. Then he said, do you, not, do you know why I've come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my set against these except Michael, your prince. All right. Guys ready to understand what that's all about? So Daniel's been mourning for three weeks. He sees a vision. And then another hand, probably Gabriel, comes and touches him. And basically says, I'm coming here. To answer your prayer how long has it taken the angel Gabriel to get to Daniel did you did you catch it how long has it taken him to get there verse 13 the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days but Michael one of the chief princes came to help me for I was left there against the king of Persia okay why has it taken so long For Daniel to be strengthened 21 days how many days is that compared to how many days he was fasting same amount of time three weeks 21 days three weeks now this is where it gets a little strange if this is the angel Gabriel who else is helping him in this fight who's listed there Michael There are two angels in the Bible that have names, archangels, Gabriel and Michael. So, Gabriel the archangel, Michael the archangel are fighting. Here's the thing Gabriel could not fight the prince of Persia on his own. He needed another angel to come and fight. That's why it took him so long. Now, are we talking about a real king of Persia? What are we talking about here? What's this all about? Because they're angels, archangels fighting, most scholars would take this, that the prince of Persia and these kings of Persia are demonic spirits, symbolic for demonic spirits, who are waging cosmic battle in the heavenlies, especially against Michael, who is the archangel over the nation of Israel. Now, it shows that these demonic forces are strong because Gabriel could not fight them alone. He needed help from another angel. He had to get help from Michael. Who is Michael? Michael the archangel. Okay, let me tell you where Michael is listed in the New Testament, in Jude. Jude, verse 9. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses... He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Evidently, the devil wanted to take the bones of Moses and turn them into relics so that people would worship the body of Moses as opposed to worship the Lord. And the Michael Ark, it says here, Archangel Michael contended with the devil. Don't ask me to explain how all this happens. Okay, so here's what we don't know. There are, here's the point, there are things that are happening in the cosmic realm right now that we don't see, and I don't know exactly how it all unfolds, but we have verses here that says there are two angels, Michael and Gabriel, fighting this quote-unquote prince of Persia, and it took three weeks, and you also have a verse in the New Testament that said Michael the archangel was fighting with the devil, okay, what about Revelation? Revelation 12, 7-9. Now, war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who's called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. There was a war in heaven between Michael and Satan. So evidently, Michael the archangel is probably the top angel who wages serious warfare against the devil. And Gabriel here was not able to do it on his own, so he had to call in his buddy, so his buddy, Michael, the archangel. Now, we need to make sure that we don't build an entire theology on this. But it does appear, and there are some people, and I'm going I'm to address an issue, because there are some people who build a theology from this passage of Scripture that there are territorial spirits over certain towns and over certain nations, and that you need to go on the offensive to do spiritual mapping. I don't know if you've ever heard of territorial spirits or, or spiritual mapping. Okay, So like, for example, in Colorado Springs, there was a famous church that when it started, the pastor thought that there was a territorial spirit over Colorado Springs. So he got a big vat of anointing oil, like, like you know, you see like when you see like the insecticide thing. And he went out to where they were going to plant the church. And he went to key areas in Colorado Springs, like City Hall. And he sprayed this anointing oil to get rid of the territorial spirits that were oppressing Colorado Springs. Okay, so that's an example. When we first moved to Sterling, like the very, the very first couple of Sundays we were here, there was a family in the church. They're no longer here. They were only here for maybe a few months. But they invited us over to dinner. And as we went over to dinner, they said, you know there's a demonic spirit over Sterling. You can feel it when you come over the overpass. You come off I-76, you come over the overpass, and as you descend into Sterling, you can feel the territorial spirits gripping this community. We are so glad God has called you here to bind these territorial spirits and to cast them out. What's your plan for spiritual mapping to map out the territorial spirits in Sterling and to engage in territorial warfare? And Don and I looked at each other like, that's not what God called us to do to come to Amanda Baptist Church. And so once this family realized that we were not, maybe that theological persuasion, (laughs) either they moved or whatever, but there are people that basically say, because of this passage of scripture, there are territorial spirits or territorial demons over certain cities, principalities, and you've got to go fight those. Okay. So here's the problem with that. We are never told in Scripture to hunt out Satan, or to find out where these territorial spirits are, or to try to map a city and go on the offensive. Daniel didn't attempt to name the demons, break their power, or cast them out. He didn't even know the battle was going on until after after it was over. So, there are no clear biblical mandates to engage in these what we call territorial demons or spirits. Okay, so here's something very, very important in Bible study that you need to understand, especially in the book of Acts, in these apocalyptic passages. This will help you in your Bible study. We must make a distinction between what is descriptive and what is prescriptive. Now, what do I mean by that? What's the difference between what is descriptive? and what prescriptive. Okay, let me explain that. Sometimes the Bible describes an event without giving us prescribed instructions on how to obey specific commands. Other times there are clear commands to be obeyed, laid out very clearly. So sometimes the Bible describes something that happened, but it doesn't tell us where to model it or do it. It just describes that something happened. There are very clear passages that tell us what we're supposed to do. Okay, this is a descriptive passage, not a prescriptive. And that's where a lot of these weird, fringe, hyper charismatic word faith groups go. They take something that's descriptive and they make it where, well, we've got to do that. We've got to emulate it. we got we got to follow that. So whatever we see somebody doing in the Old Testament, we've got to do that too. And they don't... Make the distinction between what's descriptive and what's prescriptive. So the overall emphasis in the Bible with believers is to encourage us not to sin, but instead to live holy lives. Now, let's talk about, have you ever met somebody that had a demon for everything you went through? We need to we need to get rid of the demon of the spirit they may even not use the word demon but spirit. That person has a spirit of poverty. That person has a spirit of cancer. That person has a spirit of sickness. That person has a spirit of such and such and we need to bind it. We need to we need to rebuke it. We need to cast that spirit of, that person has a spirit of fear or that you know you 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 often hear that. Okay. Where do they get that language? So let's look at the most dysfunctional church in the Bible, the church in Corinth. Had a lot of sin. Okay? So 1 Corinthians one ten. I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Okay, What's the problem here? There's discord. There's disunity. What does Paul tell the church? Does he say, hey, rebuke the demon of discord? Does he say that? No, he says get along. Get along. In 1 Corinthians 5, we won't go there for the sake of time, but this is where there's the adulterous or the incestuous relationship. There's sexual sin in the church. And Paul doesn't say, hey, rebuke the spirit of incest. He says, practice church discipline and kick the guy out. Chapter 6, 1 Corinthians, there's a problem where Christians are suing one another in court. And Paul says, does he say, hey, rebuke the spirit of lawsuits? And he's like, no, don't sue each other. 1 Corinthians 11. Let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Does Paul talk about the demon of gluttony in the Lord's Supper? See, here's here's the issue. Some people, instead of addressing sin and say, stop sinning, they will blame everything on a demon and say, you've got a demon of such and such and you just need to rebuke the demon. Well, who but whose responsibility does that put it on them? Like, You you could keep rebuking this demon, but you can keep continuing the sin. So before I go any further, does anybody have experience with stuff like this, or is this all foreign to you, of people? Maybe? Okay. Some of you are like, I don't know anything about what he's talking about. Now, when there was opposition, okay, let's talk about demons for a moment. Are demons real? Yes. Can people be demon possessed? I didn't didn't hear the whole thing. Can people be demon possessed? Yes. Okay. Can Christians be demon possessed? No. Christians can't be demon possessed because we have the Holy Spirit. Now, in the Gospels, when Jesus was doing ministry, and in Acts, the time you saw the most demonic activity was when they were going into a particular area to present the Gospel, there was demonic oppression, because the devil doesn't want to get the Gospel out. I've told you this story before, the first time he went to India, okay? Well, I'll tell you two stories about India, okay? First time, we went to this village and um, we were told beforehand that this was a family that used, used to be into talismans and into Hinduism and all the weird stuff. They became Christians, but then the wife was sick and so they went back to their witch doctor type stuff. So we were to go there because they asked us to come for prayer and I told... The guide that was with us, I said, I I will pray with them, but before I pray with them, I want to share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ because they're going back to this witch doctor as opposed to going to Jesus. Well, right as we walk into the village, this lady that was, she was obviously demon-possessed because her eyes were all glazed over and she was like yelling and screaming and doing all this crazy stuff, and she was trying to prevent me from talking, and she was trying to get in the way of me talking to this couple on porch. And the interpreter, I don't know what he said, but he did something like this with his hand and said something, and she sat there in a catatonic state. Like She was just sitting there like this. And I presented the gospel to the couple with the translator, prayed for them, said amen. The moment I said amen, she came out of her catatonic state and began doing the whole thing again. So that was a demonic encounter where that family needed to hear the gospel, but there was somebody trying to prevent it. Now, the other time we went to a, a to a village, we went into a village, and they were um, this was a village that worshipped the mountain god. So they were taking rocks and building a retaining wall, and we walked into the village and we asked the tribal chief, "Can we share a message about creation, about the god who the god of this mountain?" And he said, "Well, you're interrupting our work, but we'll let you." Because you, you, are foreigners that have come with a message. So they gathered the whole village together, and um, there was translators. And um, I started talking about sin, and I started talking about like breaking God's law. And this lady at the back, she had like this turban thing. She she stood up and she started yelling at me. She took her turban and she went, beow, 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 and, like getting real crazy, and she's like yelling and screaming at me. And I looked at. You guys know who he is. I won't say it on, on the video. I looked at our, our friend, our missionary friend, and I said, do I keep going? He's like, keep going. She needs to hear about sin. Keep going. So I kept, like, teaching about sin, and all of a sudden, this dirt devil windstorm came through the village. It just started, Just wind started coming through, and the leaves started rustling, and this, like, it just came through, and it, things got chaotic, and then the tribal chief basically said, this is enough. We don't need you here anymore. You know, Please leave our village. You've you, you overstayed. your welcome. And so we're walking out of the village, and I'm walking through the path, and I, I turned to my, um, our missionary friend. And I said, what in the world was that? And he said, in all my years of India, I've never seen anything like that. He goes, I've never seen a dirt devil or a windstorm come in. I've never seen a lady get that upset. He goes, that was definitely spiritual warfare. So there are times when you are to share the gospel in an area and there's warfare coming to where Satan wants that to be, not not to happen. So, for example, it happened to Paul in Acts chapter 16 when he was in Philippi. So as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination, literally a python spirit. She had a snake spirit. Who brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. So she was she was possessed by a demon that gave her the ability to fortune telling. And she followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now that may sound like she's on their side, but she, she was actually annoying them and, t- and turning people away from the true salvation. She kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out of her that very hour. Okay, so there are biblical examples of demonic, what's the word, demonic activity to prevent the gospel from going forth. I've experienced it personally in foreign countries, but the normal apostolic mode was to preach the gospel because it has the inherent power to transform lives and destroy strongholds. What we do not, do not see in the apostolic model is what many advocate today in territorial warfare. Okay? So in no instance, in no instance in the New Testament do we ever see anyone summoning a territorial spirit upon entering a city to preach the gospel. So what these guys will do is they'll, they'll walk into, like, let's say they come into Sterling, and they'll walk into Sterling and they'll say, we summon the spirit of Sterling to make yourself known, and we want you to come out and reveal yourself so we can, so like they they, tr- they try to summon whatever demonic spirit there is in Sterling so they can address the spirit. Never seen anything like that in the Bible. As a matter of fact, the demons only spoke to Jesus. Uh, demand... We never see people demand information from demons about local demonic hierarchy. So they'll come in; these guys will come in and they'll say, "Tell us who your top demon is. Tell us who your tell us who the hierarchy is. Who's your who's your general and who's your you know? Tell us who, who's all in your army." Okay. Um, we never see anybody say that we should believe or teach information derived from demons. Um, sometimes they'll want to get information out of demons to try to learn things, um, and then. We never see people teach by word or example that certain demonic strongholds over a city must be broken before the gospel can be effectively proclaimed. Um, what this couple told us was that our ministry as my ministry as pastor at Emmanuel and my ministry in Sterling would not be successful unless we named the territorial spirit, got information from that territorial spirit, and then rebuked and broke the curse of that territorial spirit that was hovering over Sterling and keeping it in a stronghold. So it was a little strange. What are we told to do? We are told to stand firm in the gospel. Ephesians 6, 10-13, Finally, brothers, or, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand, there's the first time that word is used, against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand, there's the second time, in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm. So we are to stand firm in the battle. James 4.7 is the same Greek word. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist is the same Greek word as stand. Stand, resist. Stand against the devil. So we need to be careful here when we talk about demonic activity that we avoid the heresy of dualism. Now what is dualism? <laughs> dualism. Two, two things. Okay, Dualism is basically this idea that... Satan and God are equal and opposing forces. There are some people that believe, like I heard somebody one day say, here's how spiritual warfare works. It's like a chessboard. God makes his move, Satan makes his move. God sees what Satan's going to do and he makes his move. Satan sees what God's going to do and makes his move. And they're playing this game of chess, trying to outwit each other. And in the end, you really don't know who's going to win out because it's a battle of chess. Is that biblical? No. Satan does not read people's minds. He's not on a mission. He's not sovereign. He can only do what God allows him to do. So dualism would say Satan has equal power with God and they're two equal opposing forces and they're kind of duking it out. Okay? No, that's not what happens. Um, just go back and read the first couple of chapters of Job and you find out that's not true. Satan has to get permission from God to even attack Job. And at the end of Job, Job 42.2 says to God, I know that you can do all things and no plan of yours or no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So God is sovereign. He can do whatever he wants. Psalm 115, verse three, our God's in the heavens. He does all he pleases. And then Isaiah 14, 27, the Lord of hosts his purpose and who will annul it? His hand stretched out. Who will turn it back? So God is absolutely sovereign. Now, that was a little bit of a, um, a detour. Now, here's the question that we don't know that we kind of have to infer. Here's the question. Why, for some reason unknown to Daniel and to us, why does God allow this three-week cosmic battle to ensue before Gabriel can go to Daniel with a message of hope? Why does Daniel have to wait three weeks? I think God was doing a work in Daniel's life to draw him closer to himself, make him more godly, and build character. Now, here's the point with you and me in spiritual warfare. God will often do this in our lives with spiritual warfare. He may allow the attacks of Satan to come upon us as a way to strengthen our faith and to mold us more into the image of God. Okay, let's let's talk some theology tonight. Does God permit Satan to somehow attack you at times? Yes. Why? I mean, it always goes back to the answer because God, God's in charge. So, we may not fully understand why we go through spiritual warfare, but God may permit Satan and his demons to afflict Christians externally, that's a key word, externally, with adversity and suffering. Now, here's the thing. Let me just write this on the board. Here's the problem sometimes. When I'm counseling somebody that's going through a hard time, it can be one of three things. So one, it could just be natural suffering that is a result of living in a fallen world. Number two, it actually may be spiritual warfare that God is allowing to happen in your life or three it may be god's discipline that you've actually done something wrong and god is disciplining you so no matter what it is you are going through a hard time and i've had people try to figure out what is it is it suffering is it spiritual warfare is it discipline um the discipline one's probably the most easy to identify because i can ask somebody is there a sin in your life that you're reaping the consequences for, that God may be disciplining you, that you need to repent of. If they can say yes to that, I said, well, maybe it could be discipline. If they say, no, I, 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 there's nothing I know of, I, there's no secret sin, not that I'm perfect, but I, you know, there, there's really nothing I can identify that I've done that's overtly sinful, then you've got to ask the question, okay, is it suffering or is it spiritual warfare? And I don't know. You don't know. All you know is that I'm going through it. So you can spend all day trying to figure out which one is it? Okay, which one is it? The other question is, why is it happening to me? You may not get an answer to either one of those. What's the most important? Not which one is it or why is it happening to me. The most important thing is who. Who am I trusting in right now? Because God may allow Satan to externally attack you, not internally because you can't be demon-possessed, I'm saying externally, as a way to strengthen your faith, draw you closer, I, I don't know. But we have an Old Testament example and we have a New Testament example. So Job, you guys remember the story of Job? Do you want to go back and read that or you just trust me? Do you, do you want to read it or do you want, or do you want to trust me? I'm good. You can trust me. Okay. So Job, Satan comes and presents himself before God, and God says, have you considered my servant Job? God points out Job to Satan, and basically Satan says to God, well, the only reason that Job worships you is because like you've blessed him and life's going good. Take away everything he has, and he'll curse you to your face. And so God says, okay, You can take away everything from Job, just don't take away his life. And then what happens to Job? Things go really bad, and Job suffers. And so God purposely allowed Satan to inflict suffering on Job for God's own purposes alone, but Satan could not go beyond what God allowed him to do. But it was God that was sovereign over the suffering through Satan. Okay, what about, so that's an Old Testament example. New Testament example would be Paul's thorn. We really really don't know what Paul's thorn is, but what does he say in 2 Corinthians? So to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, Paul said this was a messenger of Satan. We, we don't know what the thorn is. There's like so many different opinions about what the thorn is. Something inflicted Paul, and he called it a messenger of Satan. And he asked God to take it away, and what does God say? I'm not taking it away. I'll give you my grace to be able to withstand it, but I'm not taking it away. So with Job and with Paul, God ordained spiritual warfare as a way to strengthen their faith and grow them in grace. That's why James 1, 2 and 4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So when you're going through a spiritual battle, We must always remember the sovereignty of God. Here's a good verse to remember. Maybe you've remembered this one before. 1 John 4, 4. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who's in the world. Now, in times of distress, do you want a wimpy God that is often portrayed in Christian circles as this Santa Claus in the sky in a rocking chair, this kind of this cosmic genie that's there to give you whatever you want? Or do you want the blazing, brilliant, glorious Christ that showed up to John and to Daniel and said, I'm the one who's in charge? So we need the blazing sovereignty of God to help us understand what God's doing. Now, Daniel understands what's happening. So Daniel's been praying and fasting for three weeks. The angel comes to him and says, the reason you've been waiting this long to get an answer is because I've been fighting, Michael and I have been fighting this prince of Persia in this spiritual warfare, and we finally got to you to strengthen you. And so in verse 19, we hear the words of comfort that really we all need to hear during times of spiritual warfare. What does verse 19 say? Let's look look at verse 18. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. Daniel is reminded of three things. God's love, God's peace, and God's strength. What do we need to be reminded of when we go through trials? God's love, God's peace, God's strength. So first, like Daniel, what does he say? You're greatly loved. Like Daniel who was greatly loved, we too are greatly loved by our Heavenly Father. God loves us greatly. One of the best places to go is Romans chapter 8. 31 through 34. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? This God who justifies. Who's to contend? Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that, who's raised, who's at the right hand of God, interceding for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? You are greatly loved. God is on your side. 1 John 3, 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. So, no matter what you're going through, whether it's suffering, whether it's spiritual warfare, let's, let's say you don't know what it is. All you know is it's a tough time you're going through. One thing you can be assured of as a Christian is that God loves you. He will never leave you or forsake you. He's never going to... He might not take you out of the suffering, but he'll be with you through the suffering. There is a lie that's often told as a Christian cliche. Have you ever heard this? God won't give you anything more than you can handle. You ever heard that? There's a Greek word for that. It's called baloney. God may give you way more than you can handle because it's not meant for you to handle it. It's so that God can be sovereign in your life and give you the grace to go through it. So, God loves you, and we need to be. We need to hear those words that Daniel hears. Oh, man, greatly loved, fear not. Oh, man. Oh, woman. Oh, child of God, you're greatly loved. And then he says, "Peace be with you." The second thing that Daniel hears that we need to hear too is that we need to experience that peace that passes understanding. Peace be with you. What does Paul tell us in Philippians 4, 6-7? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So you're loved by God, and you can have the peace of God deep in your heart that he can give you. When you're going through times of anxiety, when you're going through times of struggle, when you cry out and pour your heart out to God, he promises to give you that peace. And notice it's a peace that passes understanding, which means what? I can't explain it. It's a deep, settled sense of contentment and peace that only God can bring to your heart. So you are greatly loved. Peace be with you. And what is the third thing that Daniel hears? Be strong and of good courage. So what's the third thing we need to be reminded of too? We need to be strengthened in the Lord and be courageous to withstand these attacks. Remember, that's what Paul told us in Ephesians 6. To put on the full armor of God, just be strong in the Lord, stand strong in, the God, in God's armor, and the devil will flee from you. Now, notice in verse 20, it says, Gabriel will fight against this demon over Persia, And he speaks of another one on the horizon from the nation of Greece. What does he say in the verse 20? Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. So what is is Gabriel saying? I took a break from my spiritual conflict to come and strengthen you. But I got to go back and fight this spiritual battle in the heavenlies. And I may need Michael again. I don't know. He, he doesn't say that. But then he says, oh, there's another one coming after that, the prince of Greece. This would be two centuries until Greece overthrew Persia under Alexander the Great. So again, I don't know all the cosmic things that are happening in the heavenlies, but this angel says, I've got to go back and fight this cosmic battle. So what happened under Persian rule in the grand scheme of things? relating to the nation of Israel in history. What happened during, what? what, so Persia, what happened to Israel under Persia's rule physically in Israel, but as a relationship to what's spiritually happening in this cosmic battle? Well, there's some things that happened in the grand scheme of things. There was a struggle to rebuild the temple. It wasn't easy. There was a major persecution of the Jews during this time under Esther. Remember Esther and Mordecai? Haman was the one that wanted to exterminate all the Jews. That happened under Persian rule. And then there was the rebuilding of the wall under Nehemiah. So three significant events that happened back in Jerusalem during Persian rule, the rebuilding of the temple, the rebuilding of the wall, and the persecution of the Jews under Esther. All of these were events that happened that were spiritual in nature it was a spiritual battle to get that ball, wall rebuilt it was a spiritual battle to get the temple rebuilt it was a spiritual battle that esther and mordecai fought against haman so we may look at this and we may think okay I don't understand all this, but there's archangels fighting other angels and other demons up in heaven, and there's all this weird stuff going on that I can't see. What part do I play in this whole thing? Besides putting on the armor of God, what do I do? Well, because you don't know what's happening, you do what Daniel did. What did Daniel do? Did Daniel know there was a cosmic conflict happening? All Daniel knew was things aren't going well in Jerusalem. So what does Daniel do for three weeks? He spent time in prayer and fasting. He spent time in prayer. That's why Paul concludes his teaching on the armor of God with the command to pray. Ephesians 6.18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayers and supplications, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, make supplication for all the saints. So, let me ask you a question. You, you know the armor of God. Put on the belt of truth. The songs we learned this summer. For put on the belt of truth, the shoes of the gospel, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit. Okay. Which part of the armor is prayer? not mentioned as a part of the armor. you know why i think prayer is the whole thing that keeps it together prayer is the overarching thing that, that holds you in that armor so spiritual warfare is most of all fought on our knees as we bow before the living god who has sent his one and only son to win the decisive battle for us. Petra had an old song. You guys like Petra back then, Christian. Get on your knees and fight like a man. That's what the name of the song was. Get on your knees and fight like a man. So ultimately, and this is where the good news comes in, ultimately victory does not depend upon us. Victory doesn't depend upon how fervently we pray because we can never pray fervently enough. It doesn't even depend on how hard the angels fight on our behalf, because we really don't know. What really matters is that Jesus won the victory on the cross for us. Now, let me give you an illustration that describes what I think is happening right now. And it's related to World War II. So some of you may know your World War II history, some of you may not, but let me just tell you what happened. So you guys remember what happened on June 6, 1944? It was called D-Day. It was where the Allied forces stormed the beach of Normandy and it was the most massive strike in history. 130,000 troops landed on the beach that day. And they, and you can go into a lot of story about it, how it really wasn't supposed to happen because the, the, the British fooled the Germans and you know there's a, a lot of interesting things that happened. But basically that ended, that pushed Hitler back And for all intents and purposes, D-Day was the decisive day when World War II ended, okay? Hitler knew he was defeated. Now, did that stop him from continuing to fight the battle? No. As a defeated enemy, what did Hitler do? He knew he was toast. So he said, if I'm going to go out, I'm going to inflict the most damage on the Allied forces that I can, They're excited to hear about World War II. Um, so, what he did was he orchestrated what was called the Battle of the Bulge, one of the last battles of World War II. This was the bloodiest battle of World War II. Okay? So, the Battle of the Bulge was the bloodiest war battle in World War II, and it was after D Day when Hitler knew he was a defeated enemy. Okay? It wasn't until April 30th, 1945. What happened? Hitler committed suicide. He knew that the Third Reich had lost. And on May 8th, the Allied forces accepted the unconditional surrender of Germany. And that was called VE Day. Remember Winston Churchill? VE Day. Victory in Europe Day. That was the official end of World War II. So, D-Day, VE Day. Okay. So, right now... We are living between D-Day and V-E-Day. What was D-Day when Jesus died on the cross? The victory was won when Jesus died on the cross. But the battle's not over until he comes back. Victory, eternal day, okay, V-E-Day. So between now, the cross, and when Jesus comes back, if you equate Satan with Hitler, what does Satan know? Satan knows he's read Revelation. What does Satan know? I'm going to be thrown into the lake of fire. I lose this battle. So Satan knows he's a defeated foe, just like Hitler knew he was a defeated foe. So what's Satan going to do? Is he going to sit down and take it, you know, easy? No, he's going to try to inflict as much damage as he can because he knows his time is short and he's going to attack God's people because he knows his end is written. So he's going to throw those flaming darts and he's going to attack us because he knows that the victory was won by Jesus and the ultimate victory is when Jesus comes back. Now, why does Jesus not come back sooner than we'd like? Because it's his timetable to come back. So when we are in the midst of the battle, when we're in the midst of suffering, What do we need to remember? Those three truths that Daniel heard. When I'm going through a hard time, when I'm going through struggling, when I'm going through pain, you're greatly loved. You can have the peace that passes understanding, and God can give you strength to stand in the day of battle. You can stand firm, you can have peace. And you can know that God will never leave you or forsake you because He loves you. And that truth, those three truths, will help you through the difficult times. Why it's happening, what's happening, I don't know. But the three things I do know is that God loves me, God will give me peace, and God will give me strength in the battle. It may be difficult. Satan may come at me hot, may come with darts, but I've been given grace to stand firm in the armor of God and he will flee from me. So that is Daniel chapter 10 tonight. Are there any questions or clarifications? Whose idea was it to do Daniel? (laughs) I'm just joking. Guys, we have, there's no more questions? We have two more weeks of Wednesday night. And there's two more chapters left. So we will finish, we'll do chapter 11 next week, and then I think the 10th, is it the 10th? I think is whatever that second Wednesday night is our last, I don't know what the date is, but there's there's two more Wednesday nights. Then we'll take a break, and then I want to announce what we're going to do next year. But when we start back up in January, we're going to start something totally new. Are there any questions? Somebody has one on line. With the shield of faith, you can extinguish all the fiery darts that the enemy may throw. Yes, amen, Jamie. Ho. That's Jamie Ho. Yeah, I, I, it's sometimes hard to monitor the questions, but I'm seeing things come through. So. All right, you guys ready to pray? All right. Father, thank you for this time tonight. Lord, we know that there are times we go through suffering. There are times we go through spiritual conflict. There are times when we have, have trials. And Lord, we may not fully understand why we go through them, but Lord, we, we know these three truths that you love us because of what Christ has done. Help us to experience your love in a very powerful way. Lord, help us to know your peace, the peace that passes understanding, that we don't need to be anxious, that you can guard our hearts and minds. And Lord, help us to be strong Help us to put on the full armor of God to be able to stand in the, the battle on that day when it comes, that you would give us grace. And Lord, we look forward to that final day when there will be final victory, when you do come back and you finally defeat Satan and all of our enemies, and you rule and reign as King of kings and Lord of lords over all things. And Lord, we know you rule and reign right now, but it'll be an ultimate reality on that final day. So Lord, help us to have hope, know that you're sovereign and you're in control. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.